Hey, welcome to the Energy Question with David Blackman. We're on the floor of Nate today. Uh, first day of the trade show has just opened up, and we are so lucky to have as our special guest to kick off the Nate uh, trade show, Doomberg, the beautiful, wonderful green chicken who is one of the smartest people I've ever seen, one of the smartest analysts about economics and the energy space. Uh, uh, going today, he has he has a fantastic Substack that everyone needs to read and subscribe to. Doomberg, how are you today, David? Stu, doing fantastic. Great to see all the action at the trade show. I was just joking with you off air how I'd have to show up to one of these in person someday. Yeah. Looks like a good time. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> we'll have to get you live in one of those mascot suits someday. That would be awesome. <laughs> that would be awesome. Well. Um, Man, it, it's so eventful in the energy space right now. I, you have, uh, actually, I think it's your most current piece uh, called Cogent Analysis. Uh, terrific analysis of how people predicting recession are kind of missing out on what's going on in the energy space currently. And I wanted to start by just giving you a chance to talk about that piece and uh, and tell everyone what your thought process is there. Yeah, this is a one of several pieces we've written on the topic in recent months. Look, as analysts, sometimes you get things wrong. And when you get things wrong, there's there's two ways to approach that. One is um, you attack people for telling you you're wrong. And the other is you try to figure out what it is that you got wrong, learn from it and get better. And um, I'd say about 18 months ago, we were firmly in the recession is coming camp and U.S. oil and gas production looks to be turning over camp. Both of those turned out to be wrong. And we put one and two together and came up with three. Um, the fact that we're swimming in cheap hydrocarbons probably is a good reason why we're not in a recession. And um, the first piece we wrote on this topic, well, we came to this conclusion after researching the natural gas market for our November doom zoom, where we, we saw the coming glut of liquefied natural gas around the world. And that caused us to ponder whether um, energy had flipped from sort of net short to net long, which I think everybody would agree it probably has. And so we wrote a piece on January 6th called Slick Landing, where the social preview was solving the mystery of the missing U.S. recession. And then we followed it up with this piece, motivated by Biden's move to pause new export approvals um, of LNG terminals, which uh, at a minimum is signaling to the market that, you know, the, the, this glut of natural gas will persist. And uh, it's just hard to argue that when you have a, a Ford integrated manufacturing powerhouse like the U.S. still does, we like to talk as though everything is done in China, but in reality, we make a lot of stuff here. When you have a forward integrated manufacturing sector that is fully tied into the natural gas market and natural gas is trading for two bucks a million BTUs, or as we like to say, for a four pack of chicken nuggets. Yeah. It's hard to imagine how the U.S. goes into a recession. Look, it's political. It's cynical. Long term, it's a very bad decision. But you, both things can be true. The, the ban on LNG and the continuing glut of trapped gas in the U.S. is bullish for the economy. It's probably bullish for Biden's political prospects. And at the same time, in the long term, it's a disastrous decision. And, and as analysts, I think we can't be tied to any desired outcome. You have to see the pieces on the board and play the next move. Yeah, I, I was talking with Steve Reese, uh, who's the uh, uh, LNG consultant. Uh, about that decision here a few minutes ago. And, uh, you know, one of the things I'm concerned about, and I wonder if if it's reasonable, is it seems to me because the Biden administration has done so many actions like this, which are 
just kind of politically motivated decisions in the energy space that aren't really consistent with uh, uh, U.S. policy of the past, it could be damaging uh, our reputation as a country, as a reliable trading partner and damaging uh, the ability of companies to make major investments with confidence that they know uh, there's going to be some consistency of application uh, in the U.S. legal structure. And I wonder what do you think about that? I, I certainly agree, but I think even more important in the short term is the consequence on investment. I mean, the one thing that investors need is regulatory certainty. And it almost right. really doesn't matter what the rules are. Just don't change them, especially don't change them mid-course, right? And it becomes harder to finance these projects. And and your comment about losing our reputation abroad, I think the venture global situation doesn't help in that regard. And hopefully that gets resolved pretty soon. Um, but from the political perspective, I, I think we could see natural gas roll over because at $2 a million BTU, it's hard to justify you know new investment in the sector. And if we do, just as the entire downstream industry got addicted to this stuff, then the whiplash could be pretty pretty substantial. And so it's not a good decision. Um, it comes at a bad time for the industry. It comes at an opportune time for Biden. Um, somebody on his team knows commodities. I think the move to empty the SPR worked out well for him politically, and this yeah. probably will, will work out for him. Somebody on their team knows. Somebody does. Yeah. I, I, I would say, you know, back when Biden was a little more, uh, I'll be, choose my words carefully, back in when Biden was a little more, had a little bit more spring yeah. in his step, let's put it yeah. that way. Yeah. Um, we used to jokingly refer to him as Joe Biden, uh, D, comma, DuPont. I mean, he comes from a state that is heavily dependent on commodities and chemicals. And he knew that industry quite well. I, I personally interacted with his staff on several occasions. And yeah. this was a, this was a politician who understood the critical role, the price of gasoline at the pump played in his reelection campaigns. And, and, you know, whatever, whether you thought he was uh, authentic or not, it, I mean, find me a politician who is frankly on either side of the aisle. Um, but he did know commodities. And, and I think he has played, this particular situation well, if your narrow consideration is short-term and political expediency. Right. Um, and, and, yeah, so, and, and so, yeah, from that standpoint, I think it is smart politics. I, I don't think there's any doubt about that. He's shoring up his base. He's, you know, appealing to young voters who don't really understand what's happened uh, much about what's happening in the world. And uh, so, yeah, from a political standpoint, I just worry about it from a long-term impact, sure. you know, on the economy. But let's let's not, not forget under Joe, John Kerry's watch, you know, the, the famed uh, climate czar, the the United <laughs> States has set record production for oil, record production for petroleum products, record production for natural gas and record refinery runs. And so the, the far left aspect of his base was agitating for this pause, the Bill Mc, McRibbon crowd and and so on and TikTok influencers and all that. But we also wrote. Um, about this when the news first broke. Look, look, there's a lot of people downstream of natural gas that were agitating for this move too. The chemical industry, um, power producers, all these people that are now going to get dirt cheap natural gas handed to them. Here we That's go. pretty funny because you were starting to introduce me. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> so back to what we were doing. Sorry about the interruption, folks. Uh, uh, I, in my zeal to introduce the episode, I forgot to mention Stu Turley, the head of the Sandstone Group, uh, is with us, and and he also has his Energy Newsbeat podcast, which is going crazy. But uh, Stu had a question for Doomberg while we were uh, while we were disconnected. 
<laughs> you know, uh, your Substack is, I think, the number one in the world. And uh, I love being a subscriber. Uh, your your thought is out there. But with the LNG market changing so much and the EIA has come out and said the only reason that we are uh, reducing our CO2 emissions, is the main primary reason is reduction in coal and then the increasing of natural gas plants. Um, how do you see the uh, regulatory issues through uh, legislation through regulation against the entire energy space as they're having to go through carbon tax, declaring all the, the stuff, because that cost is going to get thrown back to the uh, consumer. Isn't that crazy about the legislation through regulatory actions? Sure. Just one minor correction. We're number one in finance in the world. I don't know where we are oh. on, the, on the entire Substack platform because they don't release that leaderboard. But if they did, right. We would get competitive pretty quickly. <laughs> no. So to your question, Stu, um, I don't think we're going to reduce our carbon emissions at all. I think we have uh, a little rule we call Doomberg's postulate, which says every every um, ton of fossil fuels produced around the world will be burned by somebody somewhere. And local yeah. restrictions um, merely shift who gets the privilege of doing so. And, and take coal, for example. Yes, the U.S. has reduced its uh nationwide emissions because it has displaced coal with natural gas, but we're just exporting coal and uh, the developing world will greedily accept the tonnage of coal that we refuse to burn and they'll burn it over there. And yeah. our, our view is all primary energy development is additive. There is an infinite demand for energy at reasonable prices um, because energy is life. Your standard of living is defined by how much energy you personally get to harvest. And all humans everywhere want a higher standard of living. And there's five to six billion people on the planet that have a standard of living that we would consider unacceptable. And they aspire to climb Maslow's hierarchy of needs, just like we have done. And who are we to forbid them from doing so? And so if Europe discards coal and the U.S. discards coal, well, Indonesia and India and China will burn it. I mean, China is adding coal plants at an impressive rate. Um, we are going to roll the dice on climate change. Um, whatever your views are on whether carbon emissions matter and whether CO2 concentrations in the atmosphere affect the climate and whether humans are predominantly responsible, uh, we're going to roll the dice. And so our view is the money that we are wasting on trying to prevent it should be saved up and spent on remediating as things arise. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's, that's the only sane policy because China doesn't care about climate change. It's building how many scores of gigawatts of, of, of coal facilities, two hundred and forty-six gigawatts, right? That are it's uh, insane right now. It's yeah. crazy, and yeah, they're going to burn every molecule they get their hands on, yeah. whether we do or not, right? I mean, it's silly. Well, um, it is silly, and, and and to prove your postulate, right? I mean, uh, we just saw the news story at Reuters uh, Tuesday, I guess it was, uh, that over the last two years, the coal industry in the United States has had the two biggest years for total value of coal exported. Uh, since 2017, and this is during the Joe Biden administration. Um, yeah, well, again, we didn't shut down the mines. We just shut down the power plants. Right. So the yeah. coal had to go somewhere. I mean, we are mining less than we used to. It is getting harder to site new mines, and all of those things are political choices, but integrated across the world. You know, I read, I've been, we've been doing a little interesting story about China's attempts to crack its shale resources. You know, like yes, people yeah. assume that um, the Chinese are just sitting around 
allowing themselves to be dependent on energy imports from the Middle East that run through various choke points, and they're not doing anything about it. Look, they have a they have a petroleum university, uh, an entire university dedicated to petroleum engineering. And the last I checked, it had fifteen thousand enrollees. We we had no way. we had we had six hundred graduate across the whole country in the U.S. last year. Uh, there, wow. this is why when people talk about like Russia and their inability to produce commodities. This techno arrogance on the uh, on our part over here is a real challenge. I, they are going to steal whatever technology they need um, and do whatever they can to achieve energy independence. It's a project uh, on par with their semiconductor efforts uh, on Xi Jinping's national strategic priorities. Now, look, we can poo-poo their efforts and we could downplay them and we could assert Western technical superiority, but that's not going to change reality on the ground. So no, it's not. And, and nothing's going to change here in terms of policy when you replace John Kerry with John Podesta. Oh, no. Man. That's a bizarre I mean, appointment. I, that's yeah. really I mean, it, but, got, but you knew it was coming, didn't you? I mean, that, that was obviously what was going to happen. Right. I mean, I think it was uh, foregone conclusion. Really. When you want to talk about positions that are unnecessary. I mean, that's, oh, God. So, oh, yeah. you know, um, no. but I digress. It's, it's <laughs> to, to the main point. Um, you know, we've done a lot of analysis here um, around. The uh, BTU per capita, you know, the, uh, of a of a of a nation and where various countries are, and we call them the uh, the P seven, the the poorest, largest population countries, not in the G seven. Um, and there's like four and a half, five billion people that are living on on a on a weighted average basis on a one one eighth of what we do in right. the U S. Like, and we they are ten times our population. And let's say one eighth the energy use. Right. Who are we kidding? Like we will be producing more oil, more gas, more coal in 2040 than we do today. Or there'll be a lot of dead people. Um, Those are the two choices. Well, uh, but you know what? There's people in the movement who would be just fine with that. I think Uh, you see that that kind of rhetoric coming up more and more often out of the climate change movement, uh, the need to reduce population. And you can see by yeah. their actions, they're taking actions designed to make that happen. It's a very slippery slope. It's dangerous thinking. There is no doubt that amongst the hardcore environmentalists from the 60s and 70s, there is an ugly strain of Malthusian thinking at the heart yeah. of, their, of their beliefs. I don't think the average person who is concerned or has been made to be concerned about the environment understands the true consequences of the Malthusian logic chain. Um, <laughs> But once presented with those consequences, they would be appalled by it, of course, and correctly so. And this is what we call the soft left, the sort of the soft left and the soft right. And um, the soft left, um, you know, gets fed their news from various social media sites and curated by algorithms. And they've been made to be concerned about climate change. And when push comes to shove, I mean, they're not going to make a major change in their standard of living or their lifestyles uh, to accommodate. And this is why we're seeing a totally predictable move to the right in Germany um, and elsewhere. And frankly, Biden getting ahead of it here, like Biden's actual decisions um, are inconsistent with John Kerry's rhetoric. Um, Yes, they are. And so, um, again, we play this game, but ultimately we know how it has to end. And so that's makes for look, makes for lots of things to write about. So in a way, it's always Bullish I've for never us, had but. so much material in my life. <laughs> <laughs> Stu, I interrupted you a minute ago. Um, you know, when we sit back, I want your opinion, uh, Mr. Greenberg, on uh, California, my beloved weirdness that is out there. 
uh, President Z came rolling over and, and had the big meetings with uh, Governor Newsom. And that besides talking about importing of hair care products, they were actually, uh, I believe that um, uh, China has increased, David, and I have to correct me wrong, over a million barrels per day of downstream uh, uh, refining capabilities. Newsom has been reducing the, uh, has just totally killed the oil and gas and refining business. And I've heard rumblings that there are contracts coming for California to buy diesel and gasoline from China. Tell me that's not good for the environment. <laughs> yeah, these are the types of situations that arise when you have um, the Jones Act in the U.S., which limits the ability to move. Yep. Um, liquids and gases from our Gulf Coast refineries to the Northeast or California, where we lack pipelines. So an even more perverse example, the the relative shortage of diesel in the Northeast last year was um, corrected because we imported refined diesel from India. And where did India get the oil? They got it from Russia. Of course. <laughs> yeah. So uh, these types of absurdities are, uh, are, are look. We were we, we kicked a few feathers um, earlier, um, late last year, early this year, when we yeah, wrote a series, a series of articles saying peat cheap oil was a myth. Um, one a classic example of why we believe peat cheap oil is a myth is how much reserves and resources we're sitting on in California and off the Pacific coast and off the coast of Florida that are just off limits. Alaska. These are political choices. Today, yeah, right. the Democrats dominate California. If if gasoline goes to twenty dollars a gallon, guess who's not going to be dominating politics in California for very long? <laughs> and so these but these political decisions could be wiped away. Um, look, I, we're all for um, global trade. Yep. Uh, who cares where it's refined? Um, if it's cheaper to refine it in China and have it show up here now, there is some national security concerns, and and we right. do believe the market fails to price those. But the U.S. is an energy juggernaut. I mean, let's let's not kid ourselves. We even under Biden, uh, from Trump to Biden, we have added two and a half Saudi Arabias across gas and oil wow. and, and NGS. Wow. It's, it's insane. We produce, you know, if you go for the, the wider definition of oil, which includes condensates and NGLs and in right. our view, you know, any hydrocarbon that finds its way into the refinery network, we're producing 20 million barrels a day. Yeah. More, wow. more than any country has ever produced ever. 20% of global supply. We're producing something like between 25 and 30% of all the natural gas in the world as we wrote in this most recent piece, U.S. natural gas is 6% of all global energy. Bigger than, wow, I did big, not wow. that much. Big, bigger than every country's consumption on earth except for China and India. And I believe in 23, we probably passed India. Um, natural gas alone in the U.S. is just an enormous energy machine. It, it, I'm pulling up the numbers because, you know, with, with various units um, in exajoules, 35 exajoules of natural gas production in the U.S. versus 604 exajoules of global consumption across oil, natural gas, coal, nuclear, solar, wind, biomass, and hydro. So <laughs> and this is why we're not in a recession. I mean, we, we've- Thank you, Joe Biden. We, we've injected this into the veins of our manufacturing base at a time when, for national security reasons, we're embarking on a massive construction boom of new manufacturing facilities, which is now starting to work its way into the jobs report. And so you may have- thought we were going to a recession, maybe even secretly wanted one because you wanted Biden to lose the election or whatever your pre-existing bias is, the facts are unsurprising when you have a sea of cheap hydrocarbons. So natural gas is roughly $12 a 
a barrel oil on an energy basis today in the U.S. Wow. And we have an enormous amount of it. What's an advantage? It, it, and is we, the, sorry, sorry no, go ahead. Newberg, I go apologize. Ahead. Uh, in, in, in the EU, uh, Germany this morning um, just announced that they're approving nuclear as their path forward from their energy department. How fun is that? They just killed their nuclear down last year. <laughs> Is that true? I'm pulling that up. I, I, I haven't sure. seen that. Piece. I haven't seen I that. And it's absolutely a loop. And I, I'm like, okay. Um, so the deindustrialization of Europe. I thought I thought Germany was going to natural gas. Yeah, that's that's what I saw. They they approved 10 gigawatts of natural gas and after shutting. UK is going to nuclear. UK is going to nuclear. That's well, right. I thought it was. Okay. No, Germany's going was, to natural gas. I thought Germany yeah. tagged yeah. onto that. My, uh, well, we're writing that piece next, or perhaps we will. So I could give you a few details. Um, oh, yeah. absolutely. One. Yeah, the, they, I can't wait to see it. They, yes. they, they are. Um, they just approved, I believe, 10 gigawatts expansion of natural gas. To roughly oh, wow. off, roughly offset what they turned off arbitrarily and voluntarily uh, and, in the nuclear sector, but and, to make matters even funnier, they're pretending as though these plants will be sort of uh, capable of accepting hydrogen or, or sure, a little bit of hydrogen yeah. in with their nitrogen. Yes. So they're they're marketing this as a, a hydrogen economy enabling investment. Um, what a scam! Uh, and the so, blew up for a reason, Mister. Yeah, uh, hydrogen is interesting. We 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 have um we have sort of mixed views on the molecule, and I don't know if you saw a recent piece where we that this this whole concept of drilling for hydrogen, natural hydrogen, was uh, yeah, a surprise yeah, to yeah. us. Um, yeah. So we, we keep an eye on hydrogen. Hydrogen burns clean. It's yep. got a lot of energy on a on a gravimetric basis. It's very energy dense, um, and we do produce a ton of it today. We know how to handle it. You know, it's it's the precursor for fertilizer and, and it's used right. pretty extensively in the refinery network. And, uh, and so um, hydrogen is interesting. Um, the natural arc of humanity is to go from wood to coal, to oil, to natural gas, which you could, if you right. chemically, you could see that the ratio of hydrogen to carbon is increasing as you go from left to right in that right. arc. And the natural endpoint is if natural hydrogen is real, um, which it might, might very well be um, just using hydrogen yeah. directly and then circumventing the carbon emissions altogether. Now, as we said in the piece, of course, you could tell that it might be real because environmentalists are already lining up to oppose it. Of course, because it doesn't benefit their rent-seeking industries, right? Exactly. I mean, exactly. It's yeah, going to be interesting to see the the knots they twist themselves into to turn oh, hydrogen from savior to, to villain. Uh, but it's inevitable. Time. It's yeah. inevitable, right? That that's going to happen. Of course, yeah. it will. David um, and, and Mr. Doomberg, uh, with the uh, sliding uh, the BP announcing that they're getting out of uh, some of the wind, uh, wind seems and losing yeah. so much uh, of the wind. Uh, I believe that they're now moving the carbon tax as that group uh, in order to replace their money grab. If you want to call, I, you have to almost assume it's a wealth transfer or whatever it is on the. A high increase in the cost of energy. I don't know why that seems to be that way, but it seems like there's they're pushing more carbon tax and carbon uh, things, and it's going to affect the consumers even more. Is that a fair thing? Yeah, I, probably unlikely to happen in the U.S. I think we see it in countries like okay. Canada and Europe. Yeah, where where the population is a little more pliable. How's it working out in Canada, by the way? How's that Canada, working out for? Uh, it's Canada. Which <laughs> we could do a whole podcast on our oh, favorite no. uh, we, Prime we Minister Justin that. Justin Trudeau, um, who's a, <laughs> a, a, a pot, Batman, 
a popular punching bag uh, uh, for us uh, uh, on Thunberg. We wrote a piece in September of last year called Windbaggery, where we predicted yes. the, uh, the imminent demise of the wind industry. And I think that piece has aged well. Yes, it has. No doubt about it. I, I, so I wrote a piece, uh, I guess it was in the Daily Caller, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Read it you yesterday. Know, just yeah, kind of talking about how the wind industry is really struggling now. I mean, it's to me, it's really kind of teetering on the verge right now. And the EV industry is having all these problems. It's still growing. And people need to understand demand for EVs is still rising. It's just that it's kind of flattening out. And uh, I, I not, there isn't a single aspect of this energy transition that's envisioned in the Green New Deal and the Biden policies that's really working out right now for the miser. I enjoyed that piece in the Daily Caller yesterday. I also enjoyed Thanks. your your piece um, this morning on the uh, crazy politician in Canada. Oh my God! Was, yeah, uh, we can talk about him too. Ma- making making it illegal to <laughs> criticize. Uh, uh, yeah, we, um, we're all going to be in jail from this podcast if that guy gets his way. Not him. You know, I'm it, sorry. Uh, I'd like to see your passport, Mister Dumberg. Yeah. <laughs> which which one? How do you arrest the cartoon? That's what yeah. I want. Uh, you know, uh, back to wind, though, I think there's a real scandal there, which we've made reference to in that piece. This whole IRS um, retooling of existing wind turbines uh, long before their their life uh, was expected to uh, to come wow. to its natural end, uh, merely to get more yeah. money out of the government. And so now we have these giant turbine blades um, accumulating in landfills all over the country, a total waste of money. Um, um, you could it. it it's really a scandal. Like it's a, it's a grift. Um, now the offshore industry, I think is dead, good, dead and buried. Like that's just good. not going to happen now. That's um, the best news I've oh, heard all day. Onshore is, is perhaps a different story, but I still think that there, these turbines are, are stationary uh, future liability risks for these companies. And, um, and it's, so, it's, yeah. It's, it's, who's, so decommissioning uh, these offshore projects when, whenever that's actually done, it's actually going to, somebody told me it's actually going to cost more than building them, right? I mean, who knows? Um, if you if you actually do it right. It'll be all covered up, so it doesn't yeah. matter. Um, <laughs> it just it just can't work. I mean, I, it is one of those things. Um, like the, the opposition to them, the NIMBYism, which is totally real and totally understandable. Totally real, um, yeah. Our friend, um, our friend Robert Bryce has that amazing... Um, Boy, he's done such great work. He's done yeah. great with that amazing um, um, canceled projects list of wind and solar local yeah. opposition. Yep. And his, um, his, his documentary that you referenced in your piece this morning. So fantastic. Um, I, everyone needs to watch it. Yeah, it's called Juice, Power yeah. Politics and the Grid. If uh, people listening want to go see it, we're always happy to promote the good work of our friends Me too. like Robert. Me too. Um, it's a really great documentary. And so, um, yeah, it, it, in the end, these policies are luxuries of the wealthy. Let's be honest. Um, wow. I love and, the way you say that. And so we can tinker around with wind and solar and EVs and pretend like it's going to make a difference. And we could put a couple of vanity solar panels on our roof to tell our neighbors that we care more about the environment than they do. Um, and we could have our third car be uh, a Tesla um, yep. as long as we don't go on long trips with it. Sure. And, um, you know, zero to 60 time is really important to saving the environment, apparently. Yep. Um, is there any more overrated selling point for any car in history than oh. the torque in an EV? Look, I mean, if you're living you want, in a big city and stop and go traffic in I, 30 miles an is, hour. This has always rubbed me the wrong way. You know, yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. um, 
first of all, we, we're big believers that if battery materials are their limiting constraint, then we need to manage that constraint. And plug-in hybrids make a lot more sense and their designs sure. exist. And you could go 40, 50 miles on battery alone. And most people don't travel that much in a given day. And you don't have to worry about range anxiety because you fill up with gasoline and look on a on a gallon of gasoline abated per kilogram of battery basis. Um, right. Toyota's got it right. Prius, yeah. soft hybrids, plug-in hybrids. Well, um, well, Toyota so Toyota is, is going to lead the charge with yeah. the uh, hybrid. Oh, yeah. yeah well, they have been. been. Yeah. Yeah. They've caught a lot of heat. Food. They've caught a lot of heat for yeah. not going full BEV. Yeah. I think I think the the EV bubble stock phenomenon caused a massive malinvestment in the auto industry that's going to set it back 10 years. Um, oh, yes. Everybody was chasing that multiple because they believe, you know, board of directors saw what happened with Tesla stock and and decided that they needed to have their own sure. EV strategy. Yeah. And um, we're seeing it now. Um, you know, that there's a fundamental incompatibility with the American way of life and electric vehicles makes they're inevitable um, uh, that they will be a niche product. I mean, they a few percentage points of, of demand, but that's about it. Well, you, you don't think we're all going to be living in a 15 minute city with mass uh, public <laughs> transportation in 20 years. I'm more likely to be, be driving around in a power stroke diesel <laughs> retro <laughs> resto mod uh, than I am to be living in a pod somewhere. Uh, yeah. yeah. Eating, eating I, bugs uh, as we might say. Uh, I, I'm sorry. My Ford two fifty. Uh, I'm looking to get a 350 because I can't. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. Uh, I can't tow everything that I need to tow or actually do work uh, with the Dodge Ram. This will crack me up. It's got a six-cylinder in it, and it's a full EV, and that six-cylinder does one thing. It's like an old World War II technology. It charges the batteries. <laughs> yeah. Well, so how many how many cyber trucks can we put you down for, Stu? Exactly. Uh, I'll take two. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Only because it's bulletproof, uh, Mr. Newman, yeah. because yeah. Uh, my podcast, you know, I'm like a hunted man. <laughs> I, you know, the cyber truck, and I, I actually admire Elon Musk in a lot of ways, and I don't like to badmouth him. That is the dumbest design I've ever seen. It's it's a DeLorean. It's a DeLorean. And, uh, I mean, he's got his fans. Yeah. Uh, well, no, I know he does. I know he does. Buy one. Honestly, A, to support him. I love Twitter from the standpoint that I put out some controversial. Uh, Michael Young was uh, the war correspondent, and I put that on on Twitter. And it's in twelve hours, it had a hundred thousand views uh, for a two-hour video for them to register it as that. People sat through in twelve hours that thing. You got to get that censored. On LinkedIn, it's censored oh, of course it is, on yeah. Google it and YouTube, probably. Works. But it's critical, so I want to support it. But so, Doomberg, Mr. Doomberg just said that would have to be my third pickup. <laughs> <laughs> so I know we're probably already car. over thirty minutes, but I, I want to do one more thing. Uh, and we kind of touched on it earlier. Is is we have this phenomenon now, and I, I, I talked about it last week, where we have a a rig count that's you know, getting close to kind of record lows almost, 499 the last two weeks, according to Baker Hughes. At the same time, we, we have a kind of, well, a booming production of both oil and gas in the United States. We're, we're producing all this natural gas, folks, with about 120 active natural gas drilling rigs. And, and altogether, there's 499 in the United States. What is your take on that? What what do you see as the reason why our industry 
has, has been able to so dramatically increase production overall while laying down rigs. I mean, there's no question that's what's happened. I think this speaks to the broader question of, one, the massive powerhouse of technology embedded within the fossil yeah. fuel industry and the deflationary impact of the continuous improvement mindset that these scores of thousands of professional engineers, PhDs, technicians, and field workers that do the dizzying array of work that keep uh, keep the lights on and make modern life possible for us. Uh, there's a massive amount of technology embedded in the industry. Continuous improvement is, it, you know, as price takers, the only, uh, the only real um, knob they have to turn is cost, and that, yeah. that knob gets turned a lot. Um, secondly, we have radically underestimated that. Um, and in fact, part of our arguments around the whole peachy oil stuff is that it's difficult to look at backwards looking data um, without properly correcting for the exponential growth in technology. And so what does a recount mean today versus what it meant five years ago versus yeah. what it meant 10 years ago? Um, it just it, it makes using old indicators to predict the future very challenging because the underlying change, the dynamic nature of the industry, um, it truly is. I mean, of course, I'm biased. I spent 20 years in and around the sector and have many friends who work there. Um, and I have a visceral appreciation when um, I flip on a switch and the light comes on or I turn a knob and my natural gas uh, fireplace in my living room fires up. Um, and so I appreciate those people. I don't begrudge them. Um, uh, in fact, I think um, our lack of respect for the industry is one of the great catastrophic errors of our society. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I like to remind people at every opportunity that um, if you think Apple and Google and Facebook are the technology companies, you're, you're, you, you, you're missing out yeah. on a whole bunch of fascinating science and technology. You're talking yeah, it's about all over the show floor. It's absolutely. You guys yeah, know better than anybody. You're living in it. And I think these people are heroes. Yeah, not villains. I, I always have. Yeah. One last question real quick. Uh, Mr. Newberg, um, when we take a look at the dark fleet, uh, you know, you have the 600, five to 600 tankers that Venezuela, Iran, Iraq, uh, they all use it in order to bypass the sanctions. And um, uh, Iran went from 400,000 barrels a day to uh, 3.1 or 3.2, something, something like that. Something yeah. like that. And it got by going around the insurance uh, uh, companies in the UK. They've self-insured these tankers. You get tetanus from even looking at them. They're, I mean, if they have a wreck or something, they're going to just be horrible. But the second order effect of that fleet is the pricing matrices on oil. I can't, it's never a supply and demand is what it seems like with me, with OPEC, OPEC Plus. Because uh, a lot of that oil is coming outside the OPEC um, uh, pricing structures. The bifurcated and, market. And, and so yeah. is OPEC now lost all this traction, in your opinion? And how's the uh, oil pricing even figured out? Well, I mean, I, it's ultimately supply and demand in the physical markets that drives everything. And then you layer over that some paper trading and some sentiment and, and so on. But I would say the the weakening of OPEC is predominantly because of the rise of the U.S. more than anything else. I mean, oh, okay. Okay. Um, yeah. I think you know, NGL production alone would make it the second or third largest OPEC producer just with our natural natural gas liquids. And, with that, uh, yeah. <laughs> and so you know, when, you're, when you go from, when you add two and a half Saudi Arabias, um, you become stronger geopolitically and your economy does better. That's pretty simple. That's the level of analysis that we prefer to just stay at, nice and simple.
Yeah, I like it. Well, Doomberg, I, I can't thank you enough for this. I uh, really appreciate you and what you're doing. I, I just think you uh, are a tremendous public service and you yourself are a hero. You know, we talked about <laughs> these folks being heroes. No, really, uh, you really are because of the, the tremendous good. amount of really true information you're putting out into the public domain to offset so much of the propaganda in the media. And I just really can't thank you enough for being on the show. Well, it's nice of you to say, but we are capitalists first and foremost. And so if anybody listening to this would like to become paying subscribers, they could head over to doomberg.substack.com and sign up. Um, you know, penny, sir. We were more than happy to sing for our supper on podcasts like this, but we make <laughs> our money by uh, publishing our newsletter. And so if people are interested, please head on over. Uh, David Stu is fantastic. Enjoy the rest of the show. It looks like a great time. Thank oh, you. Thank you. So thank much. you, sir. And Have a great day. Next time, sir.